Welcome to Body Liberation for All. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey. This show is dedicated to bringing you all of the wellness and self-care tips that you need to live your best life. Unlike other sources, this one is focused on BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus people. There are a ton of self-help shows out there, but how many are designed just for us? So if you're ready for all of the self-help and none of the white or het supremacy, you've come to the right place. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Hey, everybody. This week, we have Stephen Andresano on the show. This is such a fun conversation. Stephen is someone with a background in theater. He is an audio guru, and he is a lover of horror. This is a genre that he loves, but also he acknowledges that sometimes the way it relates to queerness is a little problematic. So the concept of the media we love not always loving us back is not new to most of us. Sometimes you fall in love with someone who creates content, whether it's in film or in music, and you feel like they see you, you just get so much joy from consuming their content. And then all of a sudden they reveal that they don't even know you're in the audience. And if they do, they really don't know what to do with you. How do you reconcile that? And Stephen also shares a lot of Cool personal stories. Stephen is a funny person. Stephen is an interesting person. So that's exactly what this conversation is. You're going to love it. Let's get right to it. I love the titles you brainstormed for the episode, but the mm. one that resonated with me the most is like loving, <laughs> loving media. Loving media that don't love you back. There for you sure. go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's, that's an ongoing theme, I think, for a lot of people, especially like J.K. Rowling is a perfect example. I am a little bit older than most right. of the people who are like madly in love with her work. Mm. But mm. a, a lot of grown people read it too, but still, but just being disappointed or getting that gut punch from somebody yeah. who you thought created a universe where you could escape into mm-hmm. and then finding mm-hmm. out that like, they literally don't see you. They don't get you. Like somehow they're just out of sync yeah. with any of your marginalized identities, that sort of thing. And that's happened so many different times. And even yeah. though I love Stephen King, He's had a couple of problematic quotes. Ooh, <laughs> ooh baby. Ooh, Stephen King. Yeah, he... It's interesting because Stephen King is, I think, kind of typical of a lot of people in his generation. So he's a very early boomer. He, you know, he can remember going and getting these, like, really typical 1950s cultural touchstones, which is why, like, Western tropes show up a lot in his media, like, gangster, hard-boiled mm. tropes show up a lot in his media. But it also means that a lot of this cultural baggage from this very explicitly racist, sexist, homophobic time kind of bleeds through. 
Uh, and I, I think it's oftentimes the best and the worst thing about Stephen King for me, like for what I read for, right? Like, uh, which is that sometimes he will take these tropes and use them unquestioningly. Mm-hmm. And that's always disappointing. Uh, yeah. where you're like, okay, like we really, like we, we read the green mile again this year and like, it's a rough time to be reading the green mile because mm-hmm. like, it is just the magic Negro trope and it's like, yes. so painful to be like, well, you know, they literally sneak this character out of jail so that he can perform magic and save a dying white woman. And then they bring him back to jail so that he can be executed. And it's like, you oh, can just, wow. you can just leave him out of jail. Like you when you like, explain it like that, that so, is just like, yes. So, yes. But then there are times when he really thoughtfully questions these tropes and these, these kind of handed down media expressions and one that i really is controversial especially among like queer stephen king fans is stephen king's it which is one of his most iconic works by a country mile right it's sprawling fantasy horror epic one of the touchstone moments of horror in that work both in the movie adaptations and in the book itself is a hate crime Uh, there's a gay man who gets horribly brutally murdered and thrown off of a bridge and what's fascinating about it is that it's a cultural touchstone for mainers of his generation because it it represents an actual hate crime that occurred and that shocked a lot of people into understanding that queer people are in a lot of danger uh, like all the time right and he ties it to the evil force that is Pennywise. And Pennywise is interesting because he's a generational evil. He comes back every 27 years. And there's this recurrent unthinking evil theme that comes up a lot in Stephen King's work. And I personally find it very compelling to tie that kind of like, this bad thing keeps happening over and over and over again for no good reason, Mm. to tie that to the way that people feel about queer people is a really powerful metaphor for me to say like it is objectively evil what has happened here like evil in a way that is literally monstrous and so for me like there are these two worlds that exist in in Stephen king and broadly in all horror where it can draw specific lines in the sand in a way that not a lot of other genres can do. Like, it's not afraid to say, this is a monster, right? This is monstrous. that's a really good point. Yes, like, it's interesting because I'm so used to, just from living in a very white-centered world, I'm so used to consuming media made by cis, het, white men. Yep. And it's only now that the gatekeepers are largely gone and there's so much media I can consume created by a variety of people that I'm getting a little less patient or tolerant Mm -hmm. with constantly seeing things through that lens. Because even in, I watched the first remake, um, not the sequel yet. I wasn't sure if I was like ready because I was kind of disappointed by the first one. I mean, yeah. some of just compared to how terrifying it was to watch the original. 
Yeah, I was the, like, the, this the Tim Curry. Yeah, yes. Uh, I'm like, some somehow this isn't scary enough. Even that poor baby's murder at the beginning was still less scary in this one. Or maybe I've changed. I don't know. Because some I of think the acting a lot of in the first one. I think a oh, lot of yeah. it's nostalgia. Because if you go back and rewatch the original now, it feels hopelessly campy. Uh, yeah, the, the acting's pretty pretty we don't weak. let movies be campy in that way anymore we just don't it's not allowed like it's, it's been outlawed i um, think maybe it's tim curry too like tim curry there's something about him yeah so what's i i loved tim curry's performance in that because it embraces the fact that he's absurd right like they don't mm. try to make him a cool monster right they just put a man in a clown suit and say all right mess around up there for a bit like just like th- there's something about the way he commits to it, the way he commits to just being like evil and angry in that part that just works. Um, yeah. Like yeah. he just really seems to radiate that causing pain is absolutely yes. delicious yes. to him. And absolutely. it really comes across and you really buy it and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, just the the horror yeah. of knowing that there are people and there are forces out there that love to cause pain yep. and to be powerful and to have that penchant for causing suffering is like, it's very yeah. disturbing. And it is true. Like depending on your identities, it really kind of hits different than maybe it does for other people mm-hmm. who <laughs> feel safe all the time in their day-to-day life. But there's something about how in the the remake, the black kid being bullied just there's something about the way it is shared that falls mm. flat. It just feels like this came through a white lens. Like King adaptation <laughs> made by a major publisher through a white lens? <laughs> no. <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> but I do, it's still nice to get to lose yourself in someone else's yeah. world. So I do yeah. like that. I remember in a film class I took like a million years ago. One of the things that the professor focused on was how different people experience film in different ways. And especially if you're used to your story not being told, right? especially queer people have developed this ability to see themes that other people don't see Mm -hmm. or to experience a movie in a way that resonates even if that isn't the major theme in the movie. Mm. Like we, Mm. we will find queerness I, it's so funny you bring that up. Where, so we're going through in, in the podcast all of his novels, his bestsellers in chronological order, and we're reviewing them. And our next one is one of his short story collections, which I love. The delightful little spooky little bite-sized stories. And he writes a... There's a short story in, in Everything's Eventual that is very much in the like gangster, hard-boiled, like, like so I says to Johnny, like th- that kind of genre. <laughs> And it's really interesting to me because the text should make me really mad in that there's a lot of casual homophobia in it, Mm. but it's also the most like homoerotic story like ever. Like it's these three like gangster dudes who've never like they met in prison and like they've never met anyone who gets them the way that each other gets them. And I'm like, you're gay. Like, I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. Like (laughs) the fact that the most important person in your life is another man and you never think to leave his side. Like pretty gay, dude. Like, 
Well, like it's so, so interesting. Yeah, those themes, those blurred lines mm-hmm. with friendship and what mm-hmm. is the difference. And I see that all the time in films that really show how obsessively close teenage girls will get and how they like, uh, what was yeah, that I just watched, movie? I just watched Book Smart the other day and mm. Lady Bird is in the same vein. Yes, like, yes. Even like, that movie, was it Sabrina's body or Samantha's body or Jennifer's oh, body? Uh, Jennifer's body is I'm all over kind the place of a, with the a renaissance right now yes. because when it came out, we were just not having these conversations around horror and representation in the same mm. way. It, in that time period, we were really in like the Michael Bay is king kind of world of filmmaking. Mm. And Jennifer's body came out and it did something interesting in that a lot of a lot of its horror was was subtextual and the horror was not in that place (laughs) in that time period i want to say like that like the big grossing horror movies of that time period was like saw and these other Uh, kind of i can't deal i I, i'm not into that type of mm, grotesque not right it's not terrifying it's just gross it's it's violent and uncomfortable in that way yeah yeah there's a lot of like academic like theoretical whatever around those things corresponding with kind of the era in america where we were dealing with like whether or not torture is okay Mm. like the rise of that genre reflected kind of a period in american history where we were looking at like how we treat prisoners of war and there's some weird parallels horror always does this it's one of my favorite things about the genre where you can trace what people are uncomfortable with in any given time period and horror always comes out the gates swinging you know it's not it's not a, a coincidence that get out was like this landmark piece of of film because you know hands down great genre film great just like film film right beautifully written beautifully shot that movie predates this kind of countrywide conversation we're having around like what is it to be colorblind what is mm. it to not examine as especially like liberal white people yes like what is their role in complicity in a racist system and it's not a coincidence that horror went there first. And, you know, Jordan Peele knows an excellent this. point. And that literally, before you said it, as you were explaining that the film reflects what's mm-hmm. going on around us, absolutely, that's the first thing that came to my mind. And what yeah. I loved about that movie, too, was just the feeling that I wasn't just seeing something through a different lens, for once, but it was like, oh, this is such a familiar lens. That's the and fascinating thing about it. Yes. Because I, I, I feel like a million times, even the way his friend interacts with him at the end, he was <laughs> suspicious of it in the beginning. You know, it, that is so, so relatable because when you look at our history in this nation, especially in how we relate to black people, some of the things that black Americans have been subjected to, it sounds like fiction. It does not seem real. And then if you haven't really looked at that history or thought about it or just been raised hearing about it, you don't believe it. And it all sounds so fantastical to you. So at first he seems like a conspiracy theorist and he seems ridiculous. And guess what? He's Mm. totally right. And you just Mm. can absolutely relate. Yes, this is, it's just bizarre. 
that's the central like and not to be like a total pretentious can i swear on your show am i allowed to absolutely i'm thinking right. i'm just gonna mark some episodes yeah. explicit because i just can't resist it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> not not to be like that asshole but like the catharsis of horror like the thing that's satisfying about it is that I told you so moment. Uh, it's the yeah. it's the the kind of opposite of the don't go in there. It's the I told you not to go in there. <laughs> right? Like the like you did something that was profoundly stupid. And in get out, the thing that was profoundly stupid was like trusting this white family like at all. Yeah. Going <laughs> out dude's the like, don't go out there. I'm like, don't do it. You don't know these people. Like well, that's, that I think is a so moment, funny you know, too. Like the concept of turning a blind eye to microaggressions again and again and again, how it is Mm -hmm. harmful to you. It is a form of violence against you and tolerate that at your own peril. So that to me was another theme. And it, you're so right in that it predates this major civil rights movement we're going through right now, even though there's always little tremors before the the major movement right and so we were already in this process but jordan peele's fascinating to me because he's a biracial kid so he has a different yeah a a really nuanced relationship with race as is so that's interesting to see that for once because you don't hear a lot from multiracial people certainly not multiracial people that are i don't want to like say woke, but, um, just a little more conscious and really thinkers, you know, and a little bit ahead of their time. Yeah. I mean, it's not often that people who look like Jordan Peele looks are allowed to be major forces in their industry. And it's a testament to the amount of work that this dude has put in Mm -hmm. and the amount that he has said, you know, I'm not going to compromise. You know, this is art and this is how I'm going to to deal with it. And it's, I mean, it's about time. Like we, yes. you know, what's interesting to me is that there's this oversimplification of representation in media that happens a lot. Uh, and I think this is true of of queer writers as well, where we have this sense that the history of any genre or any any style of writing because what we are given handed down you know in our educational system and our culture is predominantly from like a straight white male perspective there's this temptation to say oh no one's ever done this before but that's not true like <laughs> there have been powerful black and queer voices in genre fiction for as long as genre fiction has existed it's just that we don't get to see those lineages as clearly as we get to see like your pose and your lovecrafts because we weren't allowed to right, right. like it's part of the suppression yeah so, that's an yeah, excellent man. point like where do you start so when you think of queer voices mm. that have meant a lot to you how do you go about discovering them when for so long they're not featured yeah i mean it's it's tough right and i think a lot of it does come back to as you mentioned like reading into queer themes in media that isn't necessarily uh, coded queer. So like for me, you know, I'm a horror, I'm a horror nerd. I've, I've always, I've, I like, it's been in my blood since day one. I can't explain it. It's just part of who I am. And so for me, a really early kind of literature reference point was Bram Stoker's Dracula. 
And there's a lot of sexuality in Dracula, and there's a lot of homoeroticism in Dracula. You know, Dracula as a character is is kind of part of his disturbingness, right, is that he's overtly sexual. There, I mean, there's just no getting around the fact that, like, the way that you're yeah, turned into clear. a monster in that is by being, like, centrally bit in the neck. Like, there's no getting around it. That's just what it and is. just all the sound effects right. that come with that, it's like... Who else makes those noises as they're being murdered? It's, like, it's like, we get yeah. it. It's totally, it's totally like this super like Protestant and like hardcore Christian fear of sexuality thing, which spoke to me. Like I grew up Catholic. And so there is something tantalizing about like being trapped in the Gothic mansion. And there are three beautiful women who want to bite my neck. And I'm like a middle schooler who's been raised Catholic. And I'm like, oh no, like, <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, like, then it's interesting. I... So your parents allowed you to watch horror films. Were were they super yeah. conservative or not really? No. So it's funny because my my dad is he's a very complicated figure for me religiously. My mom is kind of a lapsed uh, Protestant. It's just not su- faith isn't super big in her kind of world, which is fine. I've kind of grown into that myself. My dad is very Catholic. You know. I'm, half Italian-American. His parents are Italian Catholics and his parents before him. Yeah, it's this lineage thing. But he's also very, pretty socially left. One of my formative memories uh, is my church had a pastor who passed away, Monsignor Beatty, who was like the stereotype of like the good Catholic, like, like just like this overweight like Irish dude with who had the brogue and he would like tell everyone to just love everyone else. Like really the ideal of like, this is what Catholicism can be. Right. Yeah. And take, I think the right lessons from it. So this man passes away and uh, because our diocese is, is in a very liberal area, the Catholic church not being quite so left leaning as our parish, they bring in a more conservative, shall we say voice. I'm like 12 or 13. In oh, this. Okay. So we're in the sermon, right? It's the middle. They've they've played the hymns. We, we're waiting for our snack. You know, we're kind of in that point. And my, I'm not. I'm completely checked out, right? Like I'm thinking about whatever twelve year olds think about. I'm like, when do I get to play Mario next? Whatever. <laughs> and my dad stands up in the middle of church, and he grabs my hand and he says, "We're leaving." And I'm like, I missed something. I missed something. <laughs> like uh, something's something's happened here. And my older brother, who's three years older than me, had to fill me in afterwards. It's like one of those like quiet car rides on the way home. And I asked my brother, I'm like, what did I, like, I missed something. He says, well, I, the pastor was saying a bunch of really homophobic stuff and oh. dad wasn't having it. And oh, like, that's, that's huge for me. Great. For like, yes. To, to have a figure in my life who's like passionate about this community and about his faith but unwielding in his morality. Like he's not going to sit there and be like, you know, oh, well, this person represents my faith now. I'm going to let my two kids soak this in. He very pointedly was like, this is not. And he found a different Catholic church in the area. He was like, I'm not doing this. This doesn't represent. Oh, that's so great for you to be raised in that atmosphere. So did you have any pushback or any major hurdles when you realized your own orientation? (laughs) So I didn't, I was a late bloomer. I didn't kind of figure out what was going on with me until college, which I think is more common with, with bi folks who have attraction yeah. to, you know, all sorts of different people and bodies. Cause it's easier to rationalize, right? Like in high school, I was like, 
Oh, I I enjoy looking at other men's bodies because I'm jealous. Not because I enjoy it. Not like, you know, yeah, I'm not getting anything out of this, I swear, or whatever. <laughs> you kind of push down, right? My parents weren't surprised, necessarily. I mean, they really didn't, like, they didn't care in, like, the best way, you know? Like, oh, okay. They were supportive of me. I was, it was, I think, my senior year of college, I had come to this realization probably, like, sophomore junior year and i just never really gotten around to coming out to my parents most everyone else in my life had kind of done a soft rollout you know um as i'm kind of accepting it more and more into myself to walk back briefly here i should have seen it coming right it's one of those things where like once you realize it about yourself everything makes sense so when i was in high school i uh, hung out with my school's uh, gsa gay straight alliance every friday Oh, Every Friday, and I, I was the, well. Wait a minute. When did you graduate? Because how come that even existed? <laughs> Am I just the problem so, is probably I'm from Georgia, but where were that's you a big raised? Part of it. So I was raised in Bethesda, Maryland, which okay. is one of those like classic upper middle class, like white liberal kind of suburb bubbles where it's like where they have a GSA in a, right. in high schools. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually, Westboro Baptist Church protested at my high school. Uh, really? I went to, yep. I went to Walt Whitman High School, a.k.a. White Man High School. Unfortunate, but true nickname. And Walt Whitman is thought to be probably queer, right? He's, he's a figure, a complicated literary figure, but definitely has some, some writing in his poetry. So first of all, he's a poet, which is like already, if you're the Westboro Baptist Church, you're like, that's one strike. Uh, <laughs> but like, definitely he's thought to be a queer figure. So they, they came and they picketed with their like, ah, God hates So just because of the name? Right. Because we were oh, named my goodness, after someone who might be gay. So ridiculous. Yeah. I thought it had well, more was, to do with the GSA or something. No, well, what's amazing <laughs> is that, you know, the GSA went out and, and they, they protested mostly by being a bunch of like out and queer teenagers doing what out and queer teenagers do, uh, which is mostly like hooking up in front of the high school. Like, <laughs> it's a very weird culture. But so I thought I was the straight person in GSA. I thought I was the only person keeping the alliance together. Without me, the gays would have run amuck. It would have been. You're just like, oh, right. I'm doing my part, being an yeah. ally. Yeah, now, exactly. In hindsight, was anybody like, yeah, we were just waiting for you to know? Yeah. So one day I come home. My mom is in the kitchen. I forget. It's just like her turn to cook or something. I don't know why I remember in the kitchen, but it's one of those things where I'm like certain that this where this happened. And she does, I think, the right thing as a parent, which is very gently. She's like, oh, like, you know, you've been spending a lot of time at the GSA. Like, you know, if you ever needed to talk about any of that stuff, like, I'm here, we're open, like, totally, it would be fine. And like the snooty high schooler I am, I'm like, oh, God, mom, like, I'm not gay. Like, like, oh, like, how could you even think this about me or whatever? Like, because internalized homophobia is real. Yeah. And she says to me. I'll never forget this. She says, are you sure? (laughs) Uh, And so later, you know, I come out in like college and like I, but I only ever dated women. Like I, so I think it was for me, mostly a journey of just figuring out like that what I was feeling wasn't different just because it was of, of a different body, right? Like that I would be very, distracted by someone passing by on the street just because they're a man that doesn't mean that that feeling is different from when it and you know have you attracted had to women any 
problems like finding community within the gay community. Because I know it's an ongoing thing where I hear from Mm -hmm. cis dudes who are gay and who are only attracted to men that they believe by men are figuring some things out and that it's this stopping point between by and oh i just realized yeah i only like this one right Right. but at the same time i feel like i absolutely know that that is my Mm. orientation and so yeah i'd I'd agree i think that you know my experiences and i think this is again somewhat generational even like within generations like i think like i'm a i'm the tail end of millennials right like that is my like i'm right at the stopping point uh and i think like in between that and gen z Yes. Yeah. So I think that people on the other end of the millennial spectrum probably have different experiences with this mm-hmm. because queer identity kind of exploded in this way that I think everyone was figuring stuff out for a while. By the time it dripped down to me, there was a fairly codified, like, these are things that we do to take care of ourselves. So among people my age, I've never gotten that. Oh, um, that's amazing. That's that wonderful. Because well, no, I'm an old like, millennial and right. on the opposite end, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, for me, like I, I have never truly had that, that set of issues. Now, part of it is that like a lot of my friends are bi. So like, we've kind of already dealt with that, you know, like amongst ourselves, we, we kind of know, but yeah, I mean, the only people I've really ever gotten that from are like, you know, elders, like people that like lived through the AIDS crisis, like people who were kind of in that first wave of really puncturing the hate bubble. You know, for them, like, it's fine. Like, I'm like, I don't agree with you. But I think that they're what they what that generation has that our generation has a different struggle is I think that generation didn't have as defined categories. Like you were just like you were, if someone called you, you were a queer, you were a goddamn queer. And that's like what it was. You mm-hmm. were part of this community because you were being repressed in a very specific way. And I feel like where we're at is in this kind of, there are so many divisions and subdivisions within the acronym. Oh, God bless the big acronym. It gets longer <laughs> every day because people are trying to find who they are specifically. And I think what will happen, my theory is what will happen next generation is that we will have normalized queerness enough that people are going to start saying like, well, I don't know if I'm bi or gay or what. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. And I think that that'll probably be a a real point of tension for some people. Because like for me, having a label was really important. So I could say like, this does define me, right? I can look at this definition and say like, oh, that's where I fit. But I totally understand people who are like, I don't know, I had a friend in high school who said, uh, well, I know I'm sexual. I just haven't figured out what kind yet. And like, (laughs) that always stuck with me. I was like, yeah, that's fair. Well, it's just funny. The more labels there are, then I feel like sometimes I want to reevaluate, oh, is this new box I've become aware Mm -hmm. of a better Mm -hmm. fit for me? Because when some people say bye, they mean that they're only drawn to cis people who are male or female but when i say i mean right i'm like like, anybody any any literally anybody who's funny and who's cute yeah yeah. it doesn't it's really like i do find like i don't know what your experiences are like i do find that some and i think that the 
the fine variation between like bi and pansexual, like I find that for me, I do have different like qualifications for what makes a woman attractive versus what makes a man attractive. Like, and I don't know exactly why that is. I can't like put that into a hat and like tell you like, yeah, I can't break it down in a spreadsheet. But when I find men attractive, I do want them to have like a good personality. Like that doesn't change, but I, I, I find myself being attracted to men in a different way than I find myself being attracted to women. And I I think that for me, the distinction I've heard between that and like pansexual is that pan people are looking for a more unified kind of person across all Mm. gender lines. Like it doesn't matter. Like for me, like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're they, them, if you're genderqueer, like if you're a person and you're an attractive person, (laughs) Like, it's all good. Like, it's all fine. And I, I want to, like, I almost want to defend it because I feel like there's a, a a way that you can say, like, oh, well, doesn't that mean that you view men and women as, like, fundamentally different, like, things? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's true. I think that people end up with different personalities because they're socialized and expected to be different ways. Absolutely. Because, so I mean, that's me, with so many things. It yeah. isn't that the differences are inborn it's all about how you're socialized so like for me when i find what i find attractive in a man is often that like they're willing to step aside and like not dominate a conversation and like not be rude to other people and be aware of the privilege those are things i find really attractive in men but i also i find sometimes the opposite qualities attractive in women where like i find it attractive when a woman is willing to take up space and be like no like that self-assurance to know that despite how they're viewed, like they're going to go out there and kick ass anyway. Like that's huge for me. And my girlfriend is pursuing like a master's degree at Johns Hopkins right now. And she's finding her own path, her own way. Uh, We both grew up in like really competitive kind of educational environments. We're in those schools where it's like, if you're not getting A's, you're failing. Yeah. That kind of pressure and watching her navigate, like caring about her work without having it necessarily be like about her ego and about her like status and all that, like finding her way in a non-standard field. Like policy analytics is like a non-standard field. That's not one of those STEM fields that we were both brought up to care about. And I find that really attractive about her. Yeah. Like, I love that about her, that she's doing these these things that are like outside of what she was told was What's the thing to do? So maybe if there's if there's one thing that unites <laughs> all the people I'm attracted to, I really I do love people that are are willing to kind of step outside that box. And, yes. And yes. I was gonna say that I that's the connector that I'm right. hearing. That's the through yeah. line. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. This episode is brought to you by the Body Liberation for All community. If you are tired of digging through self-help resources for things that actually apply to your lived experience, I've got you covered. The Body Liberation for All community is 100% centered on LGBTQIA plus and BIPOC identities. Every resource that you will find there was created with you in mind. There are so many things that are unique to the queer and the person of color experience that are not being addressed in any other wellness circles. This is where you need to be to find resources 
crafted with your experience in mind that will help you live the happiest, most fulfilled version of your life. If you'd like to learn more, just visit community.daliakinsey.com. The link is in the show notes. Well, it is, it's gotta be exciting to have a platform where you can focus on your passion or your, Mm -hmm. like your jam, which is horror. (laughs) And at the same time, use your technical skills as someone who has all this experience with audio and in theater. So how did you get to the point where you realized that you wanted to broaden out in, in that I saw in the bio, it looked like COVID might've given you a little push. Yeah. COVID definitely gave me a push. So I was working as a, a technical theater person kind of across the board in theater until COVID hit. And the thing about that industry is that it is exploitative in this really unpleasant way. Like people talk about like the gig economy theater did it first. Like oh, you okay. have to scrap to be employed in theater. Cause you will be, like you got to structure your whole month like it's a spreadsheet, right? Like I would work two days at a theater in Virginia building a set and then they'd be like, all right, set's done, go home. So then I got to fill the rest of that week with like, all right, uh, I'm striking a set in in Maryland and then I'm going out that weekend and I'm working another 12 hours uh, doing sound mixing at the Atlas Theater or whatever because I don't know when the work is going to dry up. So th- because there's no, when you freelance in theater, you're not, Uh, contracted for long periods of time. So you have to be working as if your job could end tomorrow. Mm. And what happened with COVID was that it did. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, I took a look around and I was like, oh, I hate this. Like this, this is taking all of my time. And it's hard because I love theater. I love Well, I was going to say, why were you drawn to that type of work with, Mm. you know, all that pressure that's attached well, so part of it is that I've been attracted to th- performance as a subset of like entertainment since as long as I can remember, right? Like I was, uh, I like went to like musical theater, like middle school summer camp or whatever. Like I was in that kind of dorky. I played the whiz. It was a whole thing. Wait a minute. Yeah. They put on the whiz. Yeah, welcome, welcome to Bethesda, Maryland. That, man. This People, is you are blowing my mind non, right now. <laughs> non-ending. I worked on a production of Once on This Island in uh, a middle school over last summer. That was like there. There were maybe four people in the entire ensemble that were not white. Period. And I was like, this is a, not our story. Like, <laughs> and it's great is that it's always like junior productions. So you have these like horribly oversimplified like melodies and stuff. And when you're doing stories that are from like a non-Western perspective or that have to do with diaspora, there's a lot of like, like syncopation and multi-rhythm that gets thrown in there that gets like whitewashed. <laughs> it's just like, so funny because like, I'm sure the adults have the best of intentions. Oh my God. They really want, <laughs> well, cause what they want to do is they want to expose white kids to like non-white media but then they do it in the whitest way possible. And it's like, you have to just, like, there has to be a better way. Anyway. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've loved the performing arts for a long time. Part of that is that I'm dramatic, right? Like, I, I grew up on stand-up comedy. Like, I used to stay up way late Friday nights with my other brother, and we would just put on Comedy Central, and we'd watch Sam Comedians. And so there's something about timing, about, like, 
like the energy that a room has that you can play off of that I find kind of almost like mystical, right? Like mm-hmm. you go back to the ancient Greeks and these are religious performances, right? There's something really amazing about just the the communication factor. So I've always been fascinated by that. And there's this other thing that specifically technical theater does where it's a support field. And in a lot of the same way that like, the way I imagine like nurses feel about helping be in the medical system and being kind of, you know, they're not the people you think of on the front lines. They're not getting all the accolades, but they're the people making sure those machines are still running. Like, right. And that's what technical theater is all about. It's doing the things that no one is going to notice if you do it right. How do you get someone changed backstage in five seconds flat so that the audience stays in the world of a show where night and day have just passed and grandma's coming out like she just took off her in reality, it took her five seconds to get out of her evening gown and get into her like, I'm leaving for the market, whatever. In reality, there's someone back there like unzipping the thing and throwing off the bodice and someone else is putting on her boots and like all in service of the illusion of a story. That's what drew me to technical theater is that it's it's the backbone of the way that people get lost in stories. Mm. So like that's what it is for me. And podcasting is kind of a natural evolution of that in some ways because it's a very personal medium. You know, people are putting this in their ears. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. So what's your vision now? Are you kind of opening up to new possibilities, yeah. even though COVID gave you the push? Do you mm-hmm. think this is something that you would prefer to do? So my plan right now, and actually this is something that I don't think I even put in my, this is like, <laughs> to, to pull back the curtain, I got sent like a little form that's like, tell me about your life or whatever. So I am on top of all this podcasting stuff. I'm in progress pursuing a a post-bachelor's program in speech language sciences. Mm. So Starting this fall, I'll be studying at the University of Maryland, and I'll be taking a series of courses on kind of the intersection between our language system as human beings and communication disorders and audiology. So like, I just got my textbooks. They're like, like history of psycholinguistics and like child development problems for speech or whatever. Like those are the fascinating. And it's this really specific intersection between what I find really lovely about psychology, which kind of my first academic love, like that was what I I really fell for, like in high school and performance, right? Because all speech is performance, all of it, like the way that you control your mouth, where you're putting breath, like all of that is a performance. And to me, I think there's something really cool about the idea that in my day job, like I'll be able to help people communicate more effectively using their bodies. And then hopefully you know, having a job that's 40 hours a week and not like 65 hours a week, Mm. I can still have time for podcasting, which is this kind of media passion of mine. So in the meantime, like it's, it's going to be this, this theoretically, right? Like this is the dream (laughs) is that it's going to be this handoff where while I'm at school, podcasting is a way to help me garner some monetary, whatever. So I'm doing podcast launch consulting. That's huge for me. I'm doing editing. Uh, for clients kind of across the board. I'm trying to break into the audio drama realm because that's really where my education is. But, you know, I've I've edited work, everything from like five-person panel discussions on how you would beat a movie monster to like 
monologues about women's fitness. Like I, I'm an equal opportunity editor. Some people have like a niche, like my niche is people who maybe don't have the, as much resources or have really specific needs around their like technical environment. Like that's where I really like to troubleshoot. So the idea is while I'm at school, that stuff can help support me. And then when I have a career in speech language pathology, I can use that to support podcasting. So I'll kind of pass off the torch is the idea. Oh, I love that. So what does it look like, like a day of working as Mm. a speech language pathologist? That's what your title would be? Yeah, yeah. So it's really dependent because the field is very, very broad. The vast majority of speech language pathologists go into public school systems as kind of a, a specific type of caseworker. These are the people that are working with a lot of students on the autism spectrum who might have trouble communicating. These are people that are working with students that have stutters, with students that, for whatever reason, you know, there's so many ways that our language systems can get interrupted. And it's really important in the field that, like, and this is just me starting out, right? Like, these are like the things that are being driven into my head out the get go. The big thing is that intelligence and language competency are two different things, Mm. right? You can be someone who is brilliantly intelligent and has thoughts that are deep and complex and whatever, but you might have a system that's malfunctioning in some way. So for someone with a stutter, it's the literal processes by which your throat and your tongue and your air is working in tandem with how you're trying to communicate a thought. But that doesn't mean that that student is not intelligent or that student does not have the the background, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get too like political, whatever, but it bears mentioning that right now we have a candidate for the presidency, Joe Biden, who has a stutter, grew up with a stutter. And it. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's still present. You can hear it. He's worked his entire life to be an orator. And there are still moments where he'll you can hear him catch on a sentence and then go back and get it right the second time. And that is a holdover. From his experiences as a child, learning how to move past these mental blocks. So it's, it informs how people talk about him, right? Obviously, like there are things that he said that are just straight up wrong or problematic. Yeah, I guess it's the age again. I don't know. You know, like there are, you can organically put your foot in your mouth no matter what. (laughs) But there are moments that people will show where it's like, oh, like he's not like functioning mentally. And it's like, no, he has a stomach. Uh, like oh, that's it's not because he's right. And so you can see that stigma being rolled out on the national level right now. So that's like a big thing for me is that it's this intersection of like, how do you how do you support the performance? It's the right. same role. <laughs> so it's it's different from what a speech therapist might do that helps with kids that can't swallow or who are having trouble it's with the same it's the same field right okay. so voice therapy is performance notes really when you get down to it and there are a lot of voice therapists you know on in the queer world that are working with trans individuals who want their their language skills to be more closely in line with how they want to live their lives right? it's mm. part of the transition process for a lot of trans folks Especially as you're getting, you know, hormone changes, people who are going on testosterone, like their voices drop precipitously because their hardware is changing. 
Oh, so that is there are fascinating. Some, there are some speech language pathologists who will work with trans folks to say like, all right, like you're going through some changes. Like we're going to help you kind of figure out what your new voice is, which is amazing. Yeah. So for me, I, I could dork out about it like all day. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's so, it is very, very interesting because I work with a lot of kids who have Issues with poor muscle tone related to different genetic disorders right. that affect the way right. that they eat. And so I will sometimes turn to communicating with the speech therapist yep. or the yep. pathologist to help with advancing the diet. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of the limit of my exposure to it. And once or twice witnessing the horror that is a swallow study with someone who's in a nursing home who doesn't know what's going on. I, I've like literally never it seen anything hard. worse because I, I recently had a deviated septum corrected and just feeling like what it's like for people to drop a camera. Yeah. My, it's nose. so funny you say that. My, oh. my girlfriend had a deviated septum correction like last month. Oh, like, it, isn't it? it, it I mean, the process and, is gnarly, but being man. able to breathe is amazing. Like yeah, it's no, totally it's worth it. Yeah. But I can't imagine no, I, not knowing what was going on as someone was trying to put a camera down mm-hmm. your nose. Like mm-hmm. what? No, it's tough. Horrifying. But there's, there's something very visceral about our speech systems because they are so complicated, right? Like people don't think about the fact that like you're not just talking your vocal cords. You're talking about your like air intake. You're mm-hmm. talking about your sinuses. Like literally how the sound is resonating through your head it has to do with how your sinuses are laid out. You're talking about your tongue. Your tongue is a huge, complicated organ that, yeah. like, is this massive thing in your face that, like, people don't think about how big your tongue is. Like, look up, like, a, a cross-section of someone's tongue. It's huge. It's, never it's disturbing. It. It's so it's funny really because terrifying. I generally like anatomy and physiology, but when, when I was learning, <laughs> just, like, how deep is this? passage right it, it just goes. It just it goes. weirded me out i'm like how no. far are you mm. going like this no, is they, they, just insane yeah i do think that there is some sort of weird cosmic connection between being really into horror and being really into <laughs> <laughs> the weird anatomy that makes up like there's something eldritch about the way that speech works. You've got like a tentacle flapping around in your mouth. Yes, you know, that is, that is a good connection because it, <laughs> the human body is just so bizarre. It's so Always many messed ways. Up. I, like, fascinating listen. and disgusting at the same time. Like I really was just blown away by, I don't know if you've had to be screened for COVID yet, but just. Not yet. Uh, the brain tickler. They're like, yes. they're like, did you get the one that we go? Well, okay. So if, and if you're doing this on video, so I'll try to describe this as I'm doing it for those of you that aren't viewing this on video, but if you take your hands, you put them kind of right at the base of where your ears are, right? Where your, your kind of thing connects there, right there. Okay. your dangly dudes, you know, these things, your pinna, <laughs> that is about as far in as they need to go. That's ridiculous. So if you take your thumb and put it there, and then you take your pinky and put it on the tip of your nose and you take that away from your face, that little hang 10 sign is how deep they got to That's put. definitely what it felt like. And yeah, like <laughs> they just go, they go in. Uh, <laughs> it's so. ridiculous because I, I'm considered essential, which I think is a bit of a, it's a little bit of a sham, but a, whatever. A stretch, you say. Exactly. Yeah. So I work at a school system in the nutrition department. There are no kids mm. there. There's nobody eating. I'm always <laughs> doing planning and I'm just in my office and literally everything I do there, I could do in my home office, but for whatever reason, a nightmare to be in a planning field right now. Oh, oh. 
Oh, oh my goodness. First, they said, we need you to create a full plan. Like they wanted charts. They wanted graphs. Like, what are you going to do How? if they do come How? back? What are you going like, to do if they don't come back physically? What will you do if we decide to stagger the students? What? And I just want to be like, I don't want to do any of this. I'm living through a pandemic too. Tell right. me when you figure out what you're doing and then I'll also, like come back to Also the like, yeah, let me just pull down my like crystal ball here. Let me get out the tarot cards and see. It's exactly what, what they're asking for. It's 2020, baby. Like there's no predicting what's happening. Exactly. Here. All we know is it's a dumpster fire. And as soon as you think things can't get any worse, they you will be corrected. That's the only thing I've learned man. this year. But it's yeah. crazy. We keep getting exposed. I think I've gotten five tests now. Oh, and I am no. not a fan. I am not a fan. I've been such a baby about five? it. Like I cough Dude, the whole that's time. Right. Okay, I'm going to do the math here, right? Like this has to be like six <laughs> or eight inches, which you've done five times. You've got like three to four feet of, of torture. Of, of torture. Of, yeah, of Q-tip pushed through your face. <laughs> Here's a fun pro tip. If you don't want a Q-tip pushed to the back of your gullet maybe just stay inside for a while yeah. there you go stay home everybody <laughs> well you know maybe georgia is all. doing like the worst job with oh covid we've decided well i didn't realize that everyone had made this decision but mm. they don't like science around these parts i didn't really yeah. notice that until now and yeah i guess that's the end of the story that's the <laughs> yeah well, Mar- so you know because i lived out in Maryland for a bit, and I'm living in D.C. now, and Maryland's weird because they have a Republican governor who is pretty much as far left as Republicans get these days. And so he's been more or less behaving like a Democratic governor in that like we've okay. had a state shutdown, like we've been really drilling down on testing. There's been like mask That's ordinances good. and stuff. So he's not a COVID denier, which No, he's not a COVID thing. denier, which is huge. But what's interesting is watching the amount of pressure that he's under to reopen the state mm. from his base, right? Because like his base is, is buying into a lot of the rhetoric around it being safe and it's not, it's not safe. And it's hard because you can watch this guy who's who's really doing his best to represent the people who elected him, but also to keep their best interests in mind. You can see him in real time dealing with the misinformation and figuring out like, all right, like, what can I reasonably open up for my base? Right. Like it's a purely political whatever. It's heartbreaking to watch. That's a really difficult situation. It's mm -hmm. funny. Like, it makes me think, too, of your dad having the backbone to mm. say something when a larger group that he belongs to say something that didn't resonate and what he knew was pure foolishness and getting up and moving on. So yeah, there are man. all these people who are, they're not monsters, but they're, you have to be strong to be able to go there's, your own there's way. There's so much misinformation out there right now. That's what breaks my heart. Is it like, it really bothers me. You know, I went to school in Vermont. And there is, it is true, like there's a lot of the Yankee resentment of Southern states. And I grew up in Maryland, which is literally like, that's the Mason-Dixon line. Like that is right there. And so to be this kind of middle child. I didn't even know there was Yankee resentment of Southern states. All I know is what we say down here. Yeah, there's there's like some real, well, because there's this thing where the the North is convinced that all all Southerners are, are crazy and ignorant. Like well, it's not looking the, good right now. And well, that's the problem, though, is the reason why that happens is that you have communities that are severely under-resourced 
and are being fed and have been fed misinformation about their own history for decades, if not centuries, right? And that's happening right now. And you're seeing the public health effects where people are being given a very specific subset of ideas and rhetoric, and it's endangering their lives for bottom lines, for bottom lines, like it's money. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's hard because like what happens is that the people who are far enough removed from it geographically look at people who are down south and think like, look at these rubes, these individual idiots who are behaving poorly. And it's just like it ignores this whole context of being like, well, if you were under assault from misinformation 24 hours a day your entire life. You might hold some ideas that are counterproductive. Like. Well, what's so bizarre is when you're down here and I'm I'm from here and I mm. am shocked. I am mm. legitimately surprised by the amount of people in my life that are essentially COVID deniers. I literally tough. taped so up the chair in my office. One, you know, you never move your office chair because someone will swap it out for a chair that's got a bad wheel. So I <laughs> the said, the one that squeaks or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. I said, I'm not going to yeah. fall for that. It's staying in this office, but no one can sit in here. When I first went back to work, cause I stayed out for maybe a full three months working from home because I'm not crazy. And then when I realized, right. Oh, well, this is going to drag on forever. And work was basically saying for some reason, we here. need to see you get back right. here. Yeah. yeah. I had to tell people like, I don't, what are you thinking when they would come to my office and get ready to plop down in the visitor's chair? I'm like, you're out of your mind. I put a little X on the floor, like (laughs) literally 12 feet from me. I'm like, that's as far as you need to go. I can see you from there. But I eventually had to just tape up the chair because I'm like, you will not be forgetting this again. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to have to make too much of a scene. But people yeah. so don't take it seriously. People took pictures of it. They posted it on Facebook. Yeah, they're like, look and- at this crazy paranormal yes! person. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard. bizarre. But it's like, but I think, you know, you're doing kind of the Lord's work out there <laughs> in that, you know, people know you and they assume, it, and I, I'm going to assume that you're a reasonable human being. That's maybe not... <laughs> Based I on definitely one conversation. think I am. If nothing right. else, I absolutely <laughs> believe that... COVID is real, like bare right. minimum. Right. So that like, bare I know minimum, that and it's, it's important though, to like model behavior in a non-judgmental way, right? Like no one has ever had their mind changed of being yelled at. Yeah. And that being said, policies have been changed by yelling at the government. Like we should absolutely yell at the government, but we should probably not yell at our neighbors. Right. Like, I, I think that's really a big thing right now. And especially from a queer perspective, right? Like there are a lot of ideas about what kind of person is queer. And I think that right now there are a lot of ideas on both sides of the aisle about what kind of person either believes or doesn't believe the science around the coronavirus. And the problem is that there are all types of people on both sides. Yeah, that is all types of people. And we can't deal with a public health crisis in this way from a place of judgment. We just can't do it. Yeah. And it it breaks my heart because like a lot of, I know a lot of people have to blow off steam. You know, when people endanger themselves and others in a way that is selfish, you have to blow off steam. I, I think it's something I've been working on a lot during this has just been like keeping empathy in my heart. You yeah. Know? It's hard. That's it's a big hard. One. And I don't I always think, succeed. Well, I think you know? that's kind of a key, though, for your own peace of mind. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's not even yeah. just because that's a more effective way to communicate, but we have to understand that in the end, the only person you really have any control mm-hmm. over is yourself. It's heartbreaking to view the world as if everyone on the other side of this political line is a monster. Yeah. You know, if I believed that everyone who who voted for Donald Trump, who I did not vote for, like, I'll be honest about it. I, you know, I'll be open about being pretty far to the left, even like as a Democrat, like for like my choice would have been Warren, right? Like, I'm not quite so far left as some people, but like, I'm by far would never have voted for for President Trump. And if I were to believe that everyone who did is a capital B bad person, it would crush yeah. me like a can on the bottom of the ocean. Like I would, I would be devastated because like those people are my family, right? Like how That's many, the how, thing. Yeah. how many like degrees of separation do you need to go to, to get out of your political bubble? For me, it's like one or two. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's bananas being here because it literally, I'm related to Trump supporters mm-hmm. I won't identify them, even though they're still super proud of it. And I mean, related by marriage. These are not black people. But (laughs) they exist. I mean, there are a few. That's true. They show up to every campaign. Oh, please. Some of those people. I don't know if you've ever seen, but literally you can see because he visits Georgia, in my opinion, a lot. I don't know if it really is a lot. It seems like a lot. But they hire people. And they list the ads. They're on Craigslist. I'm sure there are other places too. And, you know, if you are homeless and Mm. somebody says, I'll give you a hundred bucks to stand behind this podium and smile and wear this MAGA shirt, you're like on board. Like you have to secure the bag. Like, yeah, there's really no time for you to be worried about what is this going to do to other people of color, you gotta, you gotta eat, right? So they're targeting vulnerable people. I'm sure there are some people who legitimately do support him and are black that aren't mentally ill, maybe. Cause I'm not counting Kanye cause poor thing. He, he he himself has said like, stop saying no to Kanye. Like, I don't know that anyone said no to him in the last 10 to 15 years. Well, he doesn't listen. And he said he doesn't feel like himself on his medication, which, okay, fine. Like that's a whole separate issue. But talk to, thank talk you to a for psychiatrist. I know, right? But at least thank you for openly letting us know. We Did you are... see him dragging Harriet Tubman? I'm sorry. Oh my I god! Oh my I god, like. Yes. I try not to cut celebrity gossip, but like <laughs> that is the most. A lot of buck wild things have happened in 2020. <laughs> but someone being like, you know, who didn't do enough to cause Harriet Tubman? <laughs> Ever again, <laughs> this all seems like absolute fiction, but I like that at least he's put it out there that he's not well. He knows right, that he know, should be medicated, he hasn't found the medication for him. So, tough. why anybody would be tough, like, tough, well, tough. Look, Kanye West likes him, he's unwell, he's not representative. I can't like, wait for the Kanye West biopic, that's what I want. <laughs> I want I'm it sure yesterday. It would be fascinating. He, he oh, really is an interesting person, but. I feel like ever since his mom passed, he's just, he's really been strong. I want to, like, I want to know his story. Like, I want to know, like, what led him to go from a truth teller to mm. not that, like. Yes. And I would love to know how much of that is a function of the mental illness and where is the well, Kanye how much is a first celebrity? Met? Like, yes. you know, like when you have mm. that much money, if I had the amount of money that Kanye West has. And I were to say to anyone walking down the street, like, you know, 
I've been having some thoughts about Harriet Tubman. How many of those people would be like, you're wrong? Not many. Yeah, that's you know, true. Like, if, in my inner circle, if I had like all that clout, all that money, all that power, and I said yeah. something kind of iffy, how many people would stand up to that? Many. Well, it's so interesting because he's gone so far beyond iffy. Mm-hmm. Remember when he said slavery was a choice? I'm just like, get help, my dear. Can't stop it. Like, We're praying you for are you. Playing, you are playing into the oppressor. Like, you've got <laughs> like to but to an insane extent. Like, yeah. it's, so just, it's really cartoonish. Extent, it really like, is. So it's straight just, out of the boondocks. Like, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Unreal. Absolutely. Unreal. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I, where can people catch your show? And yeah. if someone is ready to launch a podcast or, you know, who wants to work with a queer person who can really mm-hmm. help them clarify their message, where do you, they find you? So my, my hobby podcast, which is uh, the Stephen King comedy podcast is me and a buddy. We are the Stephen King Boo Club. That's B-O-O exclamation point. You can find us all over the place. What's convenient about that name is that if you plug Stephen King into your podcatcher of choice, it should pop up pretty quickly. We're the ones with the clown and the cartoonish vampire. That's us in your podcatcher. That's Stephen King Boo Club. Personally, my work can be found at indrasanoaudio.com. Now, that's an Italian name, so I'll spell it for you. That's I-N-D as in David, R-I-S-A-N-O audio.com. I do podcast launch consulting. That's huge for me because there's so much stuff to consider. I do podcast editing if you're looking to upgrade your sound. Uh, And I also do intro outro music if you want some specific branding for your show. Now I saw that and the rate was like super affordable. Yeah. Where can, do you have demos posted anyway? Where like yeah, what kind so of I'm intros? I'm working I'm working on putting together that part. I do have a portfolio page uh, on the website. I'm putting together like one final intro for a local news program right now, and then when that goes up, I will uh, have that there. But if you have any questions, you can email me at indrasanoaudio at gmail So if you're looking for a quote, if you just have some questions, I, like also like just. I'm on Twitter. Like if you need audio stuff figured out and you can't afford it, that's fine. Like I'm always around for just like small answers and stuff. This is a real like passion point for me. I've been a podcast fanatic since like, I don't know, 2005, whenever, whenever knife point horror entered my world. (laughs) Yeah. You're really Uh, in there. Well, then too, I think because you're a digital native, that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. I've been with it pretty much as long as iTunes has supported podcasting. So it's not just, you know, the years that I've done doing it. It's the years that I've I've spent consuming just like hundreds of hours of this stuff. So it's a real it's a real passion point for me. And, and in fact, I, you know, I met Dahlia. I've never pronounced your name. Out oh. loud. Dahlia? Dahlia? <laughs> Dahlia. Dahlia. All right. Nice to meet you, Dahlia, at the end of this year episode. <laughs> I met Dahlia at a podcasting conference. Like, well, it's so funny. That was thing. really, really good. Well, what drew me to you was I, I don't even remember what you said, but you were like, yeah, by pride. And I'm like, yes, because you're in an LGBTQ podcasting group and throwing the by pride up there. And it probably resonates with me even more because I'm an old millennial. I was like, wow, look at that. Putting it out I'm there. Proud. Look at the yeah, kids for go. Sure, for yeah. Sure. <laughs> I said, oh, we definitely need to connect. 
the the pleasure has been all mine. You know, if I can do anything for you or your folks, you know, obviously let me know. Thank you um, so much. Happy to be on the program. This has been an absolute delight. All those links will be in the show notes, everybody. Awesome. Signing off. <laughs> Make sure you check out Stephen's podcast, The Stephen King Boo Club. Such an interesting lesson. And this is absolutely the time of year that even those of us that usually are too chicken to enjoy this type of content, we're kind of curious about horror around October. This is the perfect time to get your feet wet with this show. You can find it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And if you need a freelance audio tech, make sure that you reach out to him and check out the website. That's Indrasano Audio. The link is in the show notes. Stephen is so knowledgeable and his rates are amazingly accessible. Be sure to check him out. Now, if you are already on the mailing list, all of these links would be right at your fingertips in your inbox. If you haven't joined so far, make sure you visit www.zenfox.com slash Dahlia Kinsey so you'll get access to all of the show notes, all of the news, special events, the whole shebang. At the end of this month of October on the 31st, I will be doing a live stream with a future guest that you have not quite met yet, who is amazing. And you want to make sure you are on the mailing list so you get those notifications right away and you don't miss anything. If you're on the list, you will be able to register for my webinar that is happening in two weeks with just the click of a button. The webinar is Decolonizing Body Image, and that is October 10th at noon Eastern Standard Time. You can check out the Facebook page, that's Facebook slash Dahlia Kinsey RD, or you can just make sure you're on the mailing list and all of these things will be delivered right to you. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go.